0: Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Well, it's all right, Riding around in the breeze. well, it's all right, if you live the life you please, well, it's all
1: right. Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. It's great to be here today. As always, happy summer solstice. Yes, good
0: afternoon and happy summer solstice.
1: Yeah, longest day of the year today, and... Uh, Gorgeous. It is.
0: Fantastic day to take your dog for a walk. Still quite comfortable out there.
1: So, you know, here in Seattle, it is a, a lovely, mild day. So many options as far as time of the day, because it's light. Yeah. I mean, not that you have to walk <laughs> you your dog while it's light out. <laughs> you could 4 a.m. You Take your
0: dog for a walk or at 9.30 9 at night. Yeah, yeah, I
1: know. Well, I, I love the seasons. I'm... I mean it don't doesn't mean that this is why necessarily but I am from New England. I was born and raised in New England, but I've lived out in Seattle for about 16 years now, I think. And uh I just love the seasons. I love the all the mark, you know, the solstice and the equinox and the feeling all of the the cycles and all that great stuff and reminds uh, it's a reminder not that I needed of the the cycles of life and death and the relationship between light and dark. And I sit here today um, in in a similar position that I was in almost eight years ago when I talked to you all about the loss of my dog, Chewy. Mm. And I did a show about that, and since then, that was episode number 31. Early was- days. 400 episodes ago yeah I've gotten away with 400 episodes of not having to deal with the grief of one of my own dogs and if you're not on Facebook uh, if you don't um, follow us on Facebook uh, when we are there the dog show with Julie Forbes um, then you might not have heard that we had to put down our dog Lois uh, a week ago a week ago yesterday It was last Tuesday, and she was our dog who we got through Old Dog Haven, who I've had on the show uh, several times over the years, a fantastic local organization that gets old dogs out of uh, shelters, you know, any sort of rescue situation, and puts them in forever foster homes, uh, what they call Final Refuge Home, which is what we were for Lois. And what's so amazing about Old Dog Haven is not only do they advocate for senior dogs who have found themselves homeless for one reason or another, um, but they provide all of the, um, uh, fund, they fund all of the dogs' uh, veterinary expenses uh, because older dogs do tend to have more medical needs than younger dogs, just like people. And that can be a deterrent for some people who maybe would be available to take an old dog in, give them the love and care that they need and enjoy having a senior dog for however long they have left. In some cases, they have many years. And in some cases, they have, you know, only weeks to live. In our case, we had Lois for three years, a little over three years. Um, Really amazing organization, olddoghaven.org is their website uh, so I remember I was on, on Facebook and I, I saw a post through old dog Haven and it was Lois's picture and I just was hit and I don't do this with like, I'm not one of those people I have, that does this with dogs all the time, you know, like, Oh, like let's just get lots of dogs. I mean, we have a good sized pack, but yeah. this has never happened to me before and hasn't happened since, but I just saw her picture. And, you know, they say, you know, don't fall in love with a picture. And I wouldn't say I fell in love with the picture, but. There was a connection. I, I just was you, like, right? I told Darcy, I was like, I just feel like there's something about this dog. I don't know. And she said, well, let's, you know, let's go get her. So we got in touch with Old Dog Haven and she was at the um, Regional Animal Services of King County and Kent at that shelter she had been there for five weeks and we went and got her on one Saturday and we walked out the door and you know we went in and met her and talked you know talked with the people and did the paperwork and all that and uh, walked her out the door and she walked out the door and then several steps you know maybe 10 steps after we actually crossed through the doorway walking through the parking lot towards our car she stopped you know, she just sort of like froze and I stopped with her and knelt down next to her and talked to her and just said, you know, you're safe. We've got you. You know, we're going to take it. I don't remember what I said to her, but I just talked to her. You know, I was like, you're safe. We've got you, you know, got nothing to worry about, whatever. Take, take whatever time you need. And after, you know, just not too long, but she just needed a second. And then she kept walking forward and hopped into the car, and the rest was history. So they told us that they weren't sure if she had too much time. She had a, a compromised airway that, that she lived with for over three years with us. But they were thinking, you know, maybe she was actually a hospice dog, so, you know, six months or less. Um she was very overweight. They had taken some weight off of her at the shelter, but I think she lost a total of like thirty pounds. And you know, she ended up her ideal weight ended up being forty two pounds. So she was like almost double her ideal body weight. It's a lot of extra weight for for a forty you know forty plus pound dog to be carrying around. So that really helped her. Um, the Natural Pet Pantry um, fed her for two years. Their cooked stew. And so not only was she getting this really fantastic nutrition, um, but the weight just really melted off of her, which was great at a, at a really good pace because we were, you know, not wanting to take it off too fast either, because that's not good for the body. Um, Lovis was always uh, sort of picky about food, which we, she sort of had this like an en- entitled um, part of her personality that we found just really funny and loved that she'd you know, she's this dog that we get at, We thought she was. We think she was probably around 12 years old when we got her at the shelter, and um, you know, you know, we're like we, you know, you were at the shelter for five weeks, and who knows what before then. We actually did get some details from a, a, an old neighbor, who ended up um, kind of keeping track of her through Old Dog Haven. She had a little angel looking out for her, which um, which was cool to kind of get some details that helped us kind of put some pieces together about her behaviors, uh, challenging behaviors, which I'll get into in a second. But she just she kind of picky, like, mm, no, that's not, you know, that's not good enough for me, you know. So we just kind of like that about her. She had that. She was very, uh, like, dignified, proud. Um, she had this really great presence, this really strong presence. And um, got her home. She definitely had to get used to all the dogs moving past her should bark when you know a dog would move past her we we have a you know our own pack and we also both work with dogs dog training and behavior professionally so we often have dogs in and out of our home um, and so there's a lot of dog activity and she it took her some time to get used to but she did um, she's she was very possessive of me and um, <clears throat> I don't know if it was that moment that we stopped in front of the shelter and I stopped and talked to her. If that was a moment where she was like, okay, you are mine and you are my survival. So I'm just going to kind of latch onto you. And part of it was her personality as well. She was a tough old, a tough old female dog. Uh, but she wouldn't even, I mean, at first she wouldn't even let Darcy into our bedroom if she was kind of, you know, happened to be laying down kind of by the door. (laughs) Uh we joked that Lois thought that she was my wife, <laughs> and um, and she would have an especially hard time when we would leave town. So when I would leave town, <clears throat> so that was when she would, ha- you know, she was she was she had an aggressive side to her that that came out. We think it was stress related, um, possibly pain related too to a degree, um, but. It wasn't she didn't have separation anxiety like if I left. At that time I was traveling to people's homes, which I'm not doing anymore, but you know, do so I'd be gone all day and she'd I'd leave and she'd be fine and I'd come back and you know, no problem. What would trigger her was when she would wake up in the morning and I wouldn't get out of bed because I wasn't there, she would get super upset. Wouldn't leave my side of the bed, wouldn't, you know, to get up to go to the bathroom, to eat. She'd you know, Darcy would try to be like, come on, you know, come out and have breakfast or let's go outside. She'd just bark at her, you know, it was hard. It was really hard for, for a while. And, you know, we, we worked with her a lot, um, over the years to kind of help that. And one of the things that actually really helped her in general was can companion. Um, it's, a uh, uh, uses CBD, um, from hemp to help dogs and there's this whole endocannabinoid system throughout the body so it can help with arthritis pain it can help with digestive issues it can help with emotional or anxiety PTSD kind of things that was like a miracle pill I've never said that about any pill or supplement or anything but oh my gosh that made a huge difference with her and we've since, you know, been recommending it to dogs that we think would benefit. And I've noticed especially senior dogs tend to do really, really well on uh, CBD. They're not all created equally. So I haven't had great success with the, like, treats that have it in it. Or But there's some oils that I've heard people have had some success with. And then we've had a lot of success with Canna Companion. Their website is canacompanionusa.com for your reference. Um So we later learned that her mom died. Lois's mom died. Who she lived with for, you know, most of her life. Because we got her, she she was about 12, we think. And um, then her son took her. And it doesn't sound like she had a great... It doesn't sound like he knew how to care for her very well. Um, And... Uh, and we were thinking that because her mom died, we were wondering if there was something context specific around, um, her mom not getting out of bed, you know, in the morning or, or just in general, something around the bed, not getting out of bed, and that Lois maybe had some sort of association of trauma with that. And that's why she would get set off when I would leave when I would leave town. It wasn't until the next morning that she will everybody woke up everybody got up i didn't get out of bed and that's what would trip that's what would really upset her so we that would make total sense i mean things aren't context specific for no reason so we don't you know know exactly what happened but that would make sense given the information that we did get by the time she past I mean you know in the last probably six months especially but I'd say the last year we really were able to get her to where she could we could get her out of that upset and you know Darcy figured out that if she fed her breakfast in bed brought her her breakfast and didn't try to get her out then she would kind of be like okay I guess I guess this is okay so and um you know I was away for the Vashon Sheepdog Classic two weekends ago, and I was um, hosting Temple Grandin for the weekend as part of that event, which was amazing. A lot more on that to come, so I'll fill you guys in some other time. I mean, we're making a, a film about my weekend with her. It was—I did four separate interviews with her over the weekend. I got to spend almost the entire time with her otherwise— in the car, on the ferry, meals. Unbelievable. The event was unbelievable. Everybody who was involved with putting that event on was just like blown away. So amazing. Darcy and I both were out of town for two days. And we think that maybe that's Lois was, you know, had been declining slowly, consistently, gradually, slowly over time anyway. So we kind of knew that her time was. Cl- closer you know sooner than later but you know we weren't holding our breath anymore because she had lived you know for three years and they thought she only had six months um, but us both being out of town I think maybe was what that that stress even though she was with uh, friends who she adores it just that stress I think maybe put her over and she really started to decline over that weekend we got back on Monday um, midday and she was um, struggling to breathe and was up basically all night struggling to breathe. And we took her in. Um, We just knew it was her time, so we took her into Jet City Animal Clinic and let her go. And, you know, I've done so many shows over the years on grief because it's such an important part of our relation I mean our lives with dogs you know we hopefully you know outlive them and, and not leave them behind like what happened to Lois and so I've had um, past clients or people who who I know who have come on the show and shared their story like I'm doing now while it's still raw Um because it's important to talk about it I mean not just for me to acknowledge you know in my own process but for any of you listening who are maybe feeling some emotion now because you're connecting to a pet that you've had to say goodbye to either recently or distantly Um, this is something that stays with us for a very long time and if we connect back to it oftentimes people will feel Emotional thinking of a dog that they lost, you know, 10 years ago um, or someone maybe had to go through losing a pet and didn't weren't able to really process it because they didn't have a community that, that understood or, you know, people who are saying like, it's just a dog or it's just a cat. Um, so we, we were clear, very, very clear based off of her symptoms that she was it was her time. Um, so we were able to let her go, um, to just shorten her suffering and we were able to be there with her and I had her, you know, laying in between my legs and was holding her and Darcy was right next to me and, um, she passed away and I just got her ashes today actually. And we bought a lilac tree to plant for her that we're going to maybe sprinkle in some of her ashes and as we plant it so that as we see, that's one of my favorite flowers. I guess they're not technically trees. I just learned that. Um, I had the hardest time finding a lavender lilac, like the color lavender because they're past their blooming season. So they're not like in season. So I th- really love lilacs. I love how they smell. And I really like the the sort of medium lavendery purple ones. <clears throat> I was finally able to find one and so I'll be able to remember Lois in in its beauty and um, that'll be really great I think it's important to do you know rituals around grief whether it's human or pet or whatever it for me anyway feels like an important part of the process uh, part of being human I think that we have rituals um but, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a tough week. I mean, I came back from Vashon on, like, a pink cloud after spending the weekend with Temple Grandin, and then literally the next day um, I had to euthanize my, one of our dogs and was just like, ugh. So um, it's, uh, it's just hard to go through. I get it. I know so many people have been really amazing. I, I did a big post um, on Facebook and, you know, wrote out a bunch of stuff, and reflections on that, and acknowledging it. She was a very popular dog on Facebook, and um, just a really great, you know, happy to share her story, and to also, um, you know, bring awareness to the amazing work of Old Dog Haven, and people just loved her, and, uh, you know, just a huge, uh, huge response from her post, and acknowledgement of her death, and I asked people to share in the comments um in addition to whatever there was to say you know dogs that that or pets who who you have you know loved and lost and you know just remembering everybody and it's it's a it's something that we have in common as humans and I think that you know one of the main messages of my time with Temple Grandin was uh you know, and this is especially fitting because right now in Seattle, it's, uh, we're coming up on Pride Weekend, which is a special weekend for me, um, that <clears throat> Temple Grandin is one of the most unique people walking the planet. Um, she's a scientist. She's brilliant. She's um, made such a huge difference in the world of, of animal welfare, animal behavior, and also understanding um, autism, and a huge, huge um, advocate for both. And but there's something that I felt as I was preparing for my weekend with her and anticipating this—you know—I picking her up at the airport and bringing her to our farm and then bringing her to Vasha, you know, and how we had all these events and all these interviews and all this preparation, I was just like, "Gosh, why am I so? Why am I so?" deeply touched and moved and inspired by this woman. I'm not, I don't have, you know, autism in, in my life, you know, uh, I don't have a family member sibling, a child, um, you know, so, you know, as, as much as I appreciate what she's done for that community, that's not a, a way that I would personally connect. And I appreciate her work with animals, tremendously but it, but it felt more personal why am i so inspired what is she bringing out in me and then what am i seeing you know when we're walking through the airport and you know we had a, a few people stop us along the way and just like oh my gosh you know can we have a picture what is it about her that that what does she bring out in people in general you know deeper a level deeper than than her work with autism, her work with animal behavior, what is that? And, and you know, for me, her brilliance and, and why she's celebrated, what is celebrated, what has been the vehicle of her massive positive impact on the world. I mean, she was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World in 2010, and she was just inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame this year is that this her she's so different and she's so celebrated and we live in a world that doesn't doesn't make it easy for people who are different especially young people um she was bullied horribly as a kid um high school was a nightmare for her she said she um did well when, you know, she was really into horses. So she had her community when she was horseback riding. She had people there. But in general population high school, she she had a horrible time. I mean, people were so mean to her um, because she's so different. And, you know, I think it's an illusion that we um think that there's some people that are different and others that aren't. I think we're all different and and we just there's a lot of pressure especially with young people to fit in and to not be different because being different can make you a target and I was bullied as a kid also um, especially around adolescence and it was around my sexuality and my expression of love and I've spent quite a bit of time as an adult working to heal that part of myself that was traumatized The first time I fell in love um and then prior to that you know I mean I was asked I remember in the sixth grade I was standing outside of my science class and I had this girl in the um class above me walked by me I think I was even wearing a skirt because I was like what that's a dumb question like where did that come from she walked by me and said are you a boy or a girl and she just said that because I had short hair and I was like what is it about um you know why does that happen and uh for me, you know, I mean, to be in the uh, presence of someone like Temple Grandin, who is as different as they get, and so brilliant, and so, uh such a, an authoritative presence. I mean, she's got some serious um power and strength in her presence, and she's so celebrated. And I think she, you know, really creates space for all of us to be who we are uniquely, and to remember that our biggest gifts, I think, that we have to give are held in the way that we are unique and the way that we are different and to, you know, encourage that expression. And um, so there's there's a lot there and, and um, you know, coming back from that and feeling that sort of blissed out from that majorly successful weekend. Like I said, we filmed... A lot of the time that we spent together, we're going to be making a documentary about that. I'm going to, I mean, think, I think I'm going to write a book about the weekend as well to go along with it. This is all sort of new development, but, you know, and then to come back and, and have to say goodbye to my, one of our dogs who, I mean, our animals are, are our family. Uh, it's just been, it's been quite a week, a, a week of reflection, of thinking about what's important. Um, and the thing I think that, that I think I was getting at was that regardless of the ways that we're different, especially now, it's hard to get along in this country. We're so divided and the grief of a lost pet is one way that we can find connection with each other. And I think that we, you know, it would benefit us all to really try to focus on those things, focus on the ways that we're connected as humans in love and in death and that you know across parties we've cried because we've had to say goodbye to a beloved family a four-legged family member and to remember that there's a lot of ways that we are really fundamentally all the same because we're all humans and the ways that we're different don't really matter that much and um, so with that I say rest in peace Lois and happy pride. And we're going to take a quick break, and I'm going to um, play an interview that I did years ago with Randall Lockwood around the Michael Vick um, dogfighting bust. Was uh, He was the, the, the man on the ground in charge of that, and a really interesting interview. And um, take care, everybody. Enjoy. See the dog and butterfly up in the air Looking for an easy way to give your dog's food a boost in nutrition? Or maybe your dog has a sensitive digestive tract, itchy skin, or is just a picky eater. We've had such great success feeding St. John Creamery raw goat's milk to our pack, and I recommend it to my clients all the time. You can get raw goat's milk for your dog all over the country. But if you live in western Washington, be sure at St. John Creamery you reach for in the freezer section of your local independent pet supply store. You can also pick up your milk at drop locations around the area. Visit stjohncreamery.com to learn more. That's stjohncreamery.com. Your dogs will love you for it. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to New Pro Supplements, we cover the world
0: of animals. This week, June 25th, it's an encore presentation of Talk With Your Animals Sunday with gifted animal communicator, medium, and Reiki master Darcy Pariso. Darcy helps listeners talk with and learn about their animal friends and helps them connect with animals or
1: human loved ones on the other side. Listen again or for the first time. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 11. Host at DogRadioShow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes. Host at DogRadioShow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living (laughs) in the future.
0: Organic, free-range, and fresh daily. Alternative Talk, 1150. And now, back to The
1: Dog Show with Julie Forbes.
0: But she ain't. Try. Dog and
2: butterfly.
1: Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. And we're talking now with Dr. Randall Lockwood, who is the Senior Vice President of Anti-Cruelty Field Services of the ASPCA, talking about his work on the ground in the aftermath of this huge uh, bust of this Michael Vick dogfighting ring um, so we're going to listen to that conversation with Dr. Randall Lockwood. Hi, Dr. Lockwood. Welcome.
2: Good morning. Oh, good afternoon. Yeah. Hi.
1: <laughs> Thanks for being on the show.
2: Thank you.
1: So you are um, on on the scene, so to speak, for the recent uh, dogfighting operation that was just recently busted, correct?
2: Correct. Yes. And, uh, we... Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, We were invited to assist the Humane Society of Missouri uh, in St. Louis. They were the lead organization, and this is an investigation that they had started uh, almost a year and a half ago, Uh, but we were invited in to assist with a a number of aspects of the case. Mm
1: -hmm. And how did uh, this—so it's been been under investigation for a while—how did the—how did the light get shed on on this operation? Uh,
2: The original leads for this were developed by the investigators with Humane Society of Missouri, uh, who I think had been uh, interested in in tracking dogfight activity in and around St. Louis, but uh, throughout the state in the St. Louis metro area through various informants. I think they they learned of a number of people. Uh, who were involved and turned that information over to federal authorities, including the uh, FBI and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, because they they do have the authority for enforcing the the federal laws governing this. Mm-hmm. I think they were then able to develop even more information through use of uh, undercover operatives. I don't know the full aspects of of the case yet. you know uh, but uh, we have I think more than twenty individuals that have been charged and and uh, I think actually some arrests are still continuing as we speak as this continues to to fan out. Mm-hmm. but it really was the the hard work of uh, Humane Society of Missouri, and and the uh, fortunate cooperation of federal authorities. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was really an encouraging development. I think some people were skeptical that the Michael Vick case, which ASPCA had also been involved in assisting federal authorities in that, Mm -hmm. uh, I think there had been concern that that was a a fluke, that, that really the federal authorities might not be interested in pursuing Smaller cases that did not involve celebrity defendants, but this this uh, I think it sent a very important message that uh, the law is the law, and federal authorities take dogfighting seriously, mm-hmm. and will work with state, local, and and other uh, people to to really crack down on it.
1: Mm-hmm. And it, from what I read, it it doesn't sound like this was a small operation at all. As it turns out.
2: There were uh, you know, a large number of individuals involved and many, many dogs, you know, probably totaling more than 500 once we consider all the different locations.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and, and some of these operations were, were quite large with 100 or more dogs, uh, you know, some, some not nearly that big.
1: Mm-hmm. And it was uh, spanning over several states?
2: Yeah, actually, there were arrests made, I think, now in a total of eight states. Uh, The major focus was really spread out over five. Uh, The ASPCA primarily assisted with the operations in Missouri and Illinois. Mm
1: -hmm. So do you—I just wonder, I mean, I can't fathom this being a form of entertainment or sport for anybody. Can you shed some light on the mentality of people who are involved in this type of thing?
2: Well, one of the disturbing things about this is— you know, they weren't all brutal, brutal psychopaths. I know one of those arrested was a high school coach. I believe another was a nurse. Um, so this does cut across you know, a wide variety of, of uh, occupation levels, economic levels, ethnicity, and everything else. And one of the things that is uh, universal, I think, is, is greed. Uh, A major motive for dogfighting is the fact that that you can make money not only in the fights themselves, but much of the money that changes hands in dogfights surrounds uh, other activities, the breeding of the dogs, sale of of puppies, uh, sale of stud feasts, sale of paraphernalia like uh, training equipment, treadmills, things like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, also we know, that invariably, at a dogfight, there are illegal drugs. Uh, virtually 100% of dogfight raids turn up illegal drugs. Mm-hmm. Often trafficking in weapons. Probably in about a third of the cases, we see weapons found, uh, illegal weapons. Uh, in addition to the gambling, so that's that's one aspect is, is the, the money. Um, another aspect really is is sort of the the sadism of it that people. Get off on, on the violence of it, and that's particularly disturbing when you do have uh, children in the audience—children who are uh, inducted into the world of, of dog fighting, partly coming in through their their love of the dogs, but then uh, the dogs are subjected to these, this horrible treatment. Um, and sometimes it's for the bragging rights that, that the dogs are essentially serving as surrogates for 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 you, and uh, you know if they're victorious. You can take some pride in that. The downside of that is when the dog is defeated, um, many dogfighters look upon that as a personal humiliation, and that's why we see sometimes some horrible treatment of the dogs that are the losers. They may simply be abandoned or left to die, but often they are brutally killed, uh, hanging, electrocution, drowning, beating. And and that's particularly disturbing. here, Here, if an animal has basically... Uh, Been a symbol for you, a symbol of your strength and machismo, and it's let you down. The results can be very brutal, and and obviously, someone capable of that kind of action is someone we need to be very concerned about.
1: Mm-hmm. And what it so there isn't really a demographic that we can identify to target uh, as far as you know education for generations to come that this is not in existence in our society.
2: Not, not really. We we have seen dog fighting uh, in virtually every state, in urban areas, suburban areas, rural areas. When I first began working with investigations of dog fighting, maybe twenty five years ago, it was kind of seen as more of a, a rural backwoods, good old boy sport. And then, uh, as we, we we saw it moving into the cities and into urban areas. It became more identified sometimes with, with the gang activity and also kind of with the outlaw and hip-hop culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, 15, 20 years ago, it was very rare to see um, black dog fighters. It was, it was unusual. And then, of course, we saw a, a, a rise of it in the inner city, I think in part due to pitbull bans. When communities start banning pitbulls, it creates the outlaw image, and for people wanting to have the image of being an outlaw it it then became an attraction rather rather than a deterrent Hmm.
1: and so are the dogs? and I know that there's the fighting dogs and then they use bait dogs as well so are all of the dogs that you've rescued pit bulls or are there multiple different breeds
2: Virtually all of them are American Pit Bull Terriers, a few pit mixes. We've seen some uh, American Bulldogs uh, and one or two other dogs that might have been kept as as guard dogs, but the majority of them are American Pit Bull Terriers.
1: Mm -hmm. And you are involved with the uh, evaluation process of these dogs for their temperament as far as...
2: Yeah, that will be beginning this, this week. We've done some preliminary work. Uh, as the animals were coming in, we'll we'll spend a lot more time doing much more detailed evaluation, and we're going to try to look as carefully as possible at uh, every dog that that is medically sound, and uh, really try to get the the most complete picture we can of, of every dog as an individual.
1: Mm-hmm. And what is the uh, what is the consequence for the people who are arrested?
2: Well, on the, uh, the, uh, these are federal indictments. Uh, I haven't seen the full list of charges, but you know, they'll go certainly in conspiracy and, and uh, in trafficking for the purposes of dog fighting. Potentially, the fines can be uh, you know, usually five years in prison. Fines can be up, upwards of as high as $250,000. There may also be state charges filed, as well as uh, cruelty to animals charges. So there could be very serious consequences for this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as I mentioned, in addition, it's usually uh, fairly typical in these cases that you also see uh, the seizure of substantial quantities of uh, illegal drugs and weapons Mm -hmm. and and parole violations and everything else. And again, I, I can't speak to the specifics of the case, and I don't know... The details of all those who have been arrested. But uh, typically, in cases like this, we have multiple charges. Um, And fortunately, since these are federal charges, those are fairly serious charges. Sometimes, what happens at the state level is if you've got a substantial uh, finding of drugs or something like that, sometimes the dogfight charges are are plea bargained away. I don't think that's going to happen in cases like this where the the, the dog fight charges are so substantial.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break, and then we will be back shortly with Dr. Randall Lockwood, Senior Ah. Vice President for Anti-Cruelty Field Services with the ASPCA. You're listening to The Dog Talk Show, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Mm Host at DogRadioShow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes. Host at DogRadioShow.com. I look forward to connecting.
0: Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living in the future. (laughs) Next week on Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair, Dr. Joel Salinas has mere touch synesthesia, a rare neurological condition that allows him to actually feel and experience the emotional and physical discomforts of his patients. Take a journey to the most remote and unexplored corners of the brain in mere touch. Also joining us, Seattle doctor Rachel Pearson has insight to share on the medical industry. Join us at noon Pacific time and catch up on Podcast. At conversationslive.net. On the path to good health and well being, Alternative Talk 1150 is the station for you. And now, back to the
1: dog show with Julie Forbes. Give me one
0: reason to stay here, and I'll turn my right back around. Give me one reason to stay
2: here,
1: and I'll turn my right back around. Welcome back to the Dog Talk Show. You're listening to Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. And we are here today with Dr. Randall Lockwood, Senior Vice President for Anti-Cruelty Field Services with the ASPCA. Welcome back, Dr. Lockwood. Thank you. Okay, so we're talking about the... Um, it's the largest in U.S. history, I believe, dog fighting operation that was just um, busted a few weeks ago. That's right. And... Um, uh, Dr. Lockwood is, is, has a, a big part in the behavior uh, evaluation of these dogs that they have um, seized from this operation. In sort of you know evaluating their temperament uh, to see what their what what their future holds for them, and I'm really um, really very curious to find out a little bit more about that process and and how you go about evaluating. Um, this breed where they've had in many cases a a, you know very abusive experience and they're also bred to fight so um so can you tell us a little bit about that process
2: well we think it's very important first of all to look upon each of these animals as an individual, even though some of them may have come from uh, champion fighting bloodlines, the reality is that's no guarantee that they will have a high level of aggression to other dogs. Uh, that, that has not necessarily been our experience in other evaluations of fighting dogs. It really depends a lot on the individual um, location where the animals are seized, their own background, and so on. It's also important to look on each of these animals as a victim, that they they have been subjected at very least to substantial deprivation. Most of their lives have been spent on a short chain with little opportunity for socialization to dogs or people. And what we in general try to do with these evaluations is to look at the potential for that and to look at At uh, possible risk factors, we do evaluate, first, the animals are given uh, a week or so to adjust to the shelter environment, realizing that they've been through the trauma of of rescue and transport and so on, Uh, give them some time to calm down, but also begin collecting information from those who are caring for them that are cleaning the cages, that are providing food, that are taking them out for walks if if they can be, and and usually in these cases most can, Um, but then also the general protocol that's been used with the Vic dogs and used in other similar assessments is to look at a range of responses to familiar and unfamiliar people and animals, uh, and, and really carefully monitor and every and all of their their interactions, but also look at the extent to which any. Uh, potential level of aggression, they show how easily can that be interrupted or diverted, which gives you a a better indicator of their potential for rehabilitation through retraining. Uh, And then the Humane Society of Missouri has been asked by uh, the U.S. attorneys to essentially provide summary evaluations of all the dogs prior to disposition hearings make recommendations ultimately it is the court that will decide uh, what is done with the animals but but we've been asked to work with them to make recommendations Mm -hmm. in the case of the Vic dogs we basically tried to categorize animals into those that we considered to be suitable for foster care and observation no animal is going to leave the temporary shelter and go straight into an adoptive home Uh, all of these animals who that, that are deemed uh, capable of, of being released will, will first go into uh, some sort of situation where where they can undergo further observation and work with people that are familiar with the, the needs of the breed. Uh, some might be designated for sanctuary at various levels, a sanctuary where they have opportunity for interaction with a variety of people and dogs, and uh, the level two sanctuary such as some of the dogs from the Vic case went to, to best friends where they have limited opportunities but gradually expanding to see if, if how well they, they do adjust to being around, uh, particularly other dogs. And then you know, the final possibility is euthanasia if it's deemed that for medical or behavioral reasons they simply cannot adjust or, or are a danger to themselves or others. Um, and at this point, I really can't make any forecast as to how many might fall into what categories. Every population of fighting dogs we, we seize is potentially a little bit different, um, you know, depending on their, their sources. In the case of Michael Vick's dogs, his dogs were actually not terribly good fighting dogs, uh the, that they were coming from a variety of sources, they were killing a lot of the dogs that were not willing to fight. But that meant that a lot of those dogs actually had very good prospects for rehabilitation. Um, in other circumstances, you know, fewer animals have, have been uh, have, have shown that kind of, of promise. So again, it's important to look on each of the animals uh, as an individual. And we try to give them their their best possible shot to to show their their best possible behavior, mm-hmm. while still remaining alert to potential problems that, that, that which we take quite seriously.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's it's you know I'm not certainly not surprised, but it's nice to hear that you are looking at it case by case, and that you seem to have a, a very balanced and realistic <laughs> perspective on the situation and the breeds, and do you, you find that some of the dogs that you that actually can be rehabilitated and are rehomed into homes that have other dogs in them?
2: That's certainly been the case with, with the Vic dogs and you know, some of the, the animals that have been described by both best friends and by bad rap. Uh, between them, they, they uh, dealt with quite a few of the animals, and there are animals there that are living happily with many other dogs. There are some that have uh, succeeded in becoming canine good citizens, which certainly requires uh, you know, good control of your behavior around children and adults and other dogs and cats and things like that. So uh, it, it certainly is, is possible. And, and again, I, we, we've learned a lot more about Um, dog aggression and fighting dogs and so on in the last 20 or 25 years, when when it was almost universal that animal control agencies and humane societies were recommending that any animals, including pups, seized from a dogfight operation should be euthanized because the risks to other animals and the public and their own return to fighting were too high. Uh, But that was in the days... When we did not have a good network of breed rescue, when we did not have a large population of people very familiar with the the needs and training of pit bulls, where we now know a lot more about applied animal behavior, we're much better at doing assessments. So uh, we, we felt it was very important to change with the times mm-hmm. and really adjust that, that view and, and make every effort when the resources are there to give uh, animals a chance. Mm -hmm. The downside ultimately, what will probably decide the fate of many animals in cases like this, really is the availability of suitable homes. Mm -hmm. It's hard enough for most shelters to place uh, adoptable pit bulls from their general shelter population. animals coming from a fight situation may have other special needs both medical and behavioral mm-hmm. so you know it's hard enough finding good homes for shelter dogs in general mm-hmm. and that that might ultimately prove to be what, what what determines the fate of a lot of these animals is just the availability of, of the right kind of homes for them rather than than their their own behavioral status
1: mm-hmm. is there and we only have a couple minutes left with you today um, is there? Something is there? A, can you share your thoughts for the two extreme sides on this pit bull and and fighting dog topic? Some wisdom for both sides to uh, consider.
2: I, I think as as with any controversy with two very polarized sides, the the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. That. Certainly genetics does influence the behavior of all dogs, and as we, we said during the break, you know, setters, set, retrievers, retrieve, and pointers point partly because that's uh, in, in their, their heritage. And fighting dogs fight because that's one of the things they've been bred to do, but not all fighting dogs fight, and, and just having come even from champion-winning bloodlines does not necessarily guarantee that an animal is going to be uncontrollably aggressive to other dogs. And we really have learned, uh, as, as with any kind of uh, attempt at genetic prediction, that you really have to look at, at the entire individual because there's so many things that can influence the course of behavior. Uh, and and that, that's been a wake up call, I think, for, for a lot of people. And, and uh, I'm comfortable with that position that, that we recognize that there are differences and, and very realistic differences in the potential for fighting dogs, but we really do have to then assess. Uh, how much of an impact that has had and certainly most groups are prepared to recognize that some animals may need to be euthanized we can't save them all we can't expect to save them all nor should we we condemn them all to death without uh, trying to take a look at each one as an individual
1: mm-hmm. Well, and um, and also importantly this operation is is no longer so that's some um That's a good place to start. Um, Thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for what you do, because I think what you do helps redeem us as a species for some of the actions that Others do as well. I, I so. hope
2: so. I really I, I do see dog fighting as really the, the ultimate betrayal of that human dog bond. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why ASPCA and other humane groups are just so dedicated to really concentrating on stamping that out.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, good luck to you with your work in the future. And thank you so much again for your time and for what you do. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. That's Dr. Lockwood, uh, Senior Vice President for Anti-Cruelty Field Services with the ASPCA. All right. Thanks so much for being with us today. Again, it's a pleasure every week. If you've missed any of our over 400 episodes, you can find them archived on iTunes for free. Also on our website, DogRadioShow.com. Take care.
0: been listening to the dog show with julie forbes wednesday afternoons at two on alternative talk eleven fifty a.m never miss another episode listen to our podcast online at dogradioshow.com or download them for free on itunes or soundcloud